Hello and welcome to Act Your Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. My name is Tasia. And I'm Corinne. And today we are talking about Shadow and Bone, the trilogy by Lee Bardugo with a very special guest, our friend Aubrey. Hi, Hi Aubrey. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, So I know Tasia and Corinne uh, the same way that they met each other through our little Game of Thrones initially community. And I help organize the book club for our Slack group. Um, And that's kind of where we really started talking was in that book channel. And it turns out we like a lot of the same books. So um, yeah. Why we're really excited to have you here today because you've kind of brought a lot of us together and given us a place to talk about books that we like. So we're very excited to have you here with us to talk about this trilogy. Um, And I will say too, I think when we were originally like planning out like who we wanted to come on to talk about certain things, we immediately were like, we need to have Aubrey to come on to talk about the Shadow Trilogy. There were a few people that like we knew immediately what we wanted them to talk about or like we wanted to ask them to come on for specific books. And you were one of the first names. We were like Aubrey for sure for the Shadow and Bone trilogy. Yeah. And I think we'll and we'll get into this as we talk about things, but I think we have differing views on some things when it comes to this (laughs) series. And we wanted to have um, a diversity of opinions on this episode. So uh, uh, you're going to be, I think, opposite to Tejo and I and a couple things. But it's going to make for a really interesting discussion. And I'm really excited for it. Uh, So thank you for being here to be. To, to debate with us, essentially, is going to be turning it too, but I'm excited about it. Yeah. I need one of those like boxing ring bells. Yeah. Like, ding, ding, ding. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's what's what I think is really interesting about this this trilogy. There's definitely some different ways to like look at things. So it's going to be a good one. I'm excited to talk about it. But before we dive in, um, we always like to talk about what we are obsessing over this week. Aubrey is our guest. Would you like to go first and let uh, us know what you're into these days? Sure. Um, so in preparation for this, I actually reread all of the Grishaverse books, Ooh. um, including, yeah, the Six of Crows and Croaky Kingdom and King of Scars, just because once I started, I couldn't stop. Understandable. <laughs> um, yeah. But then other than that, with kind of everything that has been going on, I feel like I've been sort of retreating into comfort watches and reads and so I started watching re-watching Justified which I don't know if either of you I have mean, ever watched. I have not watched it I haven't seen it but it's been on my list for ages for so long yeah yeah I went back and I first watched like my favorite episode from the series which is from episode four and then I was like I just need more Timothy Oliphant leaning <laughs> and drawing and wearing a cowboy hat really well in my life and went back to the beginning it's the first time i've rewatched it since i watched the whole thing nice. through. i mean he's definitely a big uh plus for watching that series yeah that's totally number one on my list so yeah the sort of dynamic between him and the character that walton goggins plays boy crowder is just so good too and season one is like not as great but knowing where it gets to go it's just been very comforting also to watch something that i know how things are going to end yes um, and that good. ends well um, and then I read In a Holidays, which is Christina Lauren's new romance novel. Um, yeah. And it's like a Groundhog Day sort of Christmas where she's in love with her like childhood family friend that she's mm-hmm. grown up with. And so she keeps reliving these holidays over and over again and has to figure out what to do to just move into the future. It's very cute. It's um, yeah. 
less smutty than some of the Christina Lawrence <laughs> books. Yeah. I read it too. And Chris texted like, me about it and was like, this is the least sex they've ever written. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was like barely any. And I mean, they, yeah. uh, it was, it was frustrating. I thought it was really cute too, but yeah, I don't understand how there has to be like at least a, a, a balance somewhere in the middle between their, their earlier books, which we've talked about on this show, which are like basically porn without plot. And then right. uh, some of these newer ones that are very almost chaste. <laughs> like, no, yeah. It, it does feel like they may be like a little bit overbalanced yeah. on right. that. Over-corrected like there's gotta be that. a better middle yeah. ground. Yeah. The rest of it was cute enough that I was like, okay, it's fine. It's not yeah. super smutty, but I, I felt something really, I feel like they watched that show, uh, Russian doll with Natasha Lyonne and drew inspiration from that because it has like a similar like time loop type thing where like the protagonist keeps getting injured and like being reset. And that's exactly what happens in Russian dolls. So I was like, Oh, really watching this and got inspiration from it. But yeah, no, I thought it was cute too. Put me in the holiday mood. Yeah. Uh, Teja, what are you into these days? I have pretty much just been going through my library holds and clearing them all out. So I think a just in the last, task. yeah, yeah. Right. So just in the last week, I've read This Is How You Lose the Time War, Her Body and Other Parties, and One to Watch. Mm-hmm. I loved all three of them. And now I'm in that like very rare position where I have no library holds. And I feel so light and so free. And <laughs> like no pressure to read anything. I don't even know what to do with myself. <laughs> I know. it's That's such a good feeling. I, I'm kind of in a similar boat right now. And I'm like actually reading things I own, which is which is nice. It's been a while. Um, I don't know her body and other parties. What what is what is that book? It's um a collection of short stories by Carmen Maria Mercado, I think. Oh, okay. I yeah. don't have the information right in front of me, but um it's really good. It's a bunch of yeah, short stories and uh I nice. highly, highly recommend it. Nice. Those other two I have read though, and they're really good. One to watch was is such a good romance rom-com story. Um, it's kind of bachelorette inspired. Uh, for this, have you read that one, Aubrey? Yeah, I've read one to watch. I just haven't. I have not read. This is how you lose the time war yet. And I think it's my so library holds. It's like one of the most lyrical books I've ever read. Yeah, it's short but dense, but really well mm-hmm. done. It's like sci-fi and. It's a really interesting when I got it from the library and then I bought it because I'm like, this is one that I think every reread will add more to my understanding and enjoyment of it. It's a good one. I am this week into much like everyone on the internet. I feel um, the Queen's Gambit on Netflix. It I watched the whole thing over the course of like the last week and it was really, real well done. Just beautiful costumes, beautiful sets. Uh, just a really uh, compelling story. I know nothing about chess and found myself riveted by every single chess game they played, which is, I think, the best um, endorsement of that show to make me like, care about this game that I know nothing about, including there's one scene that was like the most sexual tension ever, like via a chess game. I was like, what is this? How are they like conducting this magic? Um, so that was really, really good. I liked that a lot. Book-wise, I read this week the uh, third book in the Bromance Book Club series by, I think her name is Lisa K. Adams. The third book's called Crazy Stupid Bromance. Um, For those who don't know, that trilogy is about a group of guys who read romance books to learn lessons about how to treat the women in their life and interact with women in their lives and how to like strengthen their relationship. Promise could go really badly and come off like kind of condescending or or just overly masculine, but I think it it 
actually does a really nice job of showing kind of like what you want the men in your life to be like. They end up being very progressive and learning a lot from these books. And I, the third book was probably my favorite since the the first one in the series. Um, it was a good like friends to to more romance that uh, had some nice interplay with. A ro- uh, they're always reading a romance novel as they're like going on their romantic exploits in real life. And I thought it was really well done. All right. Should we dive into these books here? I'm going to do a summary of all three books, uh, which is going to be a little long because there are three books. I tried to synthesize it down as much as possible. But since this is the first of our three Grishaverse episodes, I I wanted to at least talk about all these things because things in the trilogy do come up later in the universe. And so I think it's important to to get it all out there. So I'm just going to dive on in. Buckle up. So we'll start first with Shadow and Bone, the first book in the trilogy. Alina Starkov grew up as an orphan with her best friend, Mal. They both now serve in Ravka's first army, with Alina serving as a cartographer's assistant and Mal as a tracker. Lena is in love with Mal, but doesn't think he reciprocates. Ravka is divided into two by the Shadowfold, an impenetrable darkness filled with violent creatures called Volkra. As their military unit crosses the fold, the Volkra attack, and in an effort to save Mal, Alina suddenly releases previously unknown power, the ability to summon the sun and cast great light. This draws the attention of the Darkling, the leader of Ravka's second army, comprised of the Grisha, who possess the power to manipulate matter at its most basic form. The Darkling believes that Alina is the only one who can destroy the fold and unify Ravka and takes her in to train her in her powers. They head to the capital, and while there, Alina meets Bagra, who is ultimately revealed to be the Darkling's mother, and reveals to Alina that the Darkling just wants to use Alina and her powers to expand the fold and take over all of the lands. Alina runs away and meets back up with Mal, and they confess their love for each other. They then set about tracking Morozova's stag, a magical creature who must be killed in order to use its antlers as amplifiers for Alina's powers. They find the stag, and Alina shows mercy upon the stag, deciding not to kill him. But then the Darkling finds them, killing the stag himself and forcing Alina to wear the antlers, thus putting her powers under his control. He wants her to use the powers to cross the fold, but as they do so, Alina is able to cast off the Darkling's control and save Mal, who the Darkling is trying to kill. The book ends with them escaping from Ravka and and running away in an effort to stay away from the Darkling. That's book one. And in the second book in the trilogy, In Siege of Storm, the Darkling very quickly finds Alina and Mal and tries to transport them back to Ravka via a ship helmed by the pirate Sturmhand, while also seeking out the Sea Whip, another powerful magical creature that will produce yet another amplifier for Alina's powers. They find the Sea Whip, but then Sturmhand saves Alina and Mal, eventually revealing himself to be Prince Nikolai Lansov, the second son of the King of Ravka. He wants to make a play for the throne himself and reunite Ravka and agrees to let Alina lead the second army if she agrees to help him. They return to the capital and plot with the other Grisha as to how to take down the Darkling, who eventually attacks the capital. Alina attempts to kill herself and the Darkling in order to put an end to things, but Mal saves her. Alina and Mal flee only to find themselves forced into hiding with the Apparat, a priest who thinks Alina is a saint. That's book two. And then in book three, Rune and Rising, Alina, Mal, and the other Grisha they're in hiding with finally escape from the apparat who has been holding them hostage. They then devise a plan to find the Firebird, another magical beast that will provide a third and final amplifier, hopefully giving Alina the power she needs to 
beat the Darkling. They reunite with Nikolai, but the Darkling eventually finds them using his dark magic to turn Nikolai into a winged monster who seeks out human flesh. Alina and the rest of the crew escape and continue to try to track the Firebird. They find it, but realize that the Firebird is not the third amplifier. Mal actually is. This means that in order to claim the third amplifier, Alina will have to kill Mal. They meet the Darkling on the fold for a final confrontation. Alina kills Mal, but thinks that the amplifiers don't work as she immediately loses her powers. But instead, her power has actually been transferred to everyone else fighting against the Darkling. They are all able to summon the sun and do so, destroying the fold. Alina kills the Darkling, and Mal comes back to life as the amplifier within him was a separate life than his normal human one. Alina's friends allow the world to believe that she died in the attack, and she and Mal live their lives out together in hiding. And that's the Shadow and Bone trilogy. <laughs> you did a very good job Ooh, convincing yeah, a lot oh my into. <laughs> Apologies to basically every other character who I cut out from that uh, summary, but that does not mean we won't talk about some of our favorite Grisha. But yeah, so this this is the Shadow and Bone trilogy. I think it's kind of I think a good place maybe to start is to talk about the context of when this trilogy came out because I think it is very similar to a lot of books that were coming out at the same time. And um, so the first book was released in 2011, I think. So these three books came out in 2011, 2012, 2013. And there are a lot of similarities and it feels similar in a lot of ways to a lot of other big fantasy trilogies that were coming out at that time. There's, I definitely get shades of the Hunger Games here. I get um, shades of, of, of the Red Queen series, which was also coming out around the same time. Um, I, I think there was just a lot around that time of like kind of normal girl uh, gets uh, superpowers that she were previously unknown to her, and and then she sets out about kind of saving the world. Um, so it's a very familiar type of of story. Do you guys like feel similarly that there's it's I think in a lot of ways a product of its time and like when it was being written. Yeah, I think you're right about a lot of YA books, YA fantasy books in particular, coming out really in like the 2010s that were pretty similar. And it's funny that you bring up the Hunger Games because I was actually thinking that Ruin and Rising, that whole section of the book where they're underground and kind of trapped, it's kind of relentlessly bleak and depressing and very like, it reminds me a lot of Mockingjay where where Katniss is just kind of in in the deepest of depressions during the whole book. And it reminded me a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, I think at that time you're seeing like a lot of female writers in YA taking those sort of typical chosen one tropes that have previously always been men. I mean, going back to like Lord of the Rings or Wheel of Time, which I read like these big fantasy novels and all it's always a young boy who suddenly discovers that he's got powers. I mean, really it's just like the King Arthur story over and over again and turning it into women. But I do think, yeah, that Rune and Rising, it has sort of like a similar field to Mockingjay. And in some ways, I think a lot of the authors at that time were also more willing to talk about things like PTSD and exploring how that impacts these characters. So you have maybe just like a similar approach in the water at that time to tearing down these old fantasy tropes and redoing them from a more feminine perspective, which is interesting. Yeah. And I think that kind of leads into how I wanted to start today. I know, you know, normally on this show, we like to pick apart themes that we like to address. And that's kind of our goal here, right? Is to talk about broader themes within YA that can translate to, to adults and to, to 
different uh, reading audiences other than who they're geared towards. And this this trilogy in particular is a little lighter on that than some of the other things. And even then the other books in this, in this universe, I think um, the six of crows duology in particular dives into some more issues than the, the trilogy hits upon. So I think rather than talking about themes in this episode, um, we're going to talk more about specific characters and how they interact with kind of the main theme of this trilogy, which is the idea of power and, and the corrupting influence of power and, you know, how Alina and then the Darkling are kind of the two sides of that in, in this trilogy. So let's start then, I guess, by talking about Alina and how she uh, has an interplay with power and how she works for us as um, as the the hero of of this trilogy, because again, she I, I can't help but compare her to her contemporary heroes, uh, her contemporaries, and in, in terms of the same some of those same trilogies and, and stories that were coming out around the same time. Uh, so I'm interested to see what you guys think. Um, Tejo, I'll start with you. What do you what do you think of Alina generally? Well, all right. I want to I want to preface this with I. When I first read these books, I read the I got the first one from the library as an ebook and I read it and I really liked it. And then I didn't want to wait for the library holds to come in for the other two, so I just got them through Audible credits and I listened to the audiobooks and I liked each one. Like I mean like less than I liked the first ebook. And I think that comes down entirely to the audiobook performance, which I got to say is not great like if you haven't read this and you're somehow listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> I do not recommend the audiobooks. Um it's kind of baffling the performance. Like sometimes like random characters will have Russian accents and others will inexplicably not have Russian accents. Um people's names are pronounced differently like every other sentence. Like it's Genya or it's Genya or you know it's really really weird. It's it throws me off. It makes it so much cheesier than it needs to be, I think. It, I just don't like the performance. So it's hard for me to talk about like Alina in particular because in the audiobook I just find her really annoying and kind of uh she just she feels like she's feeling sorry for herself like 98% of the time and I'm just like oh you're boring. So that's where I'm at with Alina. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel similarly, although I had an opposite experience. I read the physical copies of all three books. I like the first book the least, far and away. It's my least favorite. I was thinking as I was reading it for this podcast, I was like, I don't ever want to read this book again because I think it's it's definitely the weakest of the trilogy. Each book gets, I think, progressively better for me. I have similar problems with Lena, though. I don't think that, that it's just the audiobook's fault. For me... I think she's a little bit too much of a blank slate. When we when we meet her, she all we know about her is that she finds she thinks of herself as very plain and her only real characteristic is that she's in love with Mal and she doesn't think Mal reciprocates. Her power reveal comes very very early in this book. It's within like 20 pages. So we never get a chance to like learn anything about Alina separate from her powers and for me i think that does her a disservice when we were talking about these like other series i find her most her story in a lot of ways most similar to the the heroine of the red queen series which is um, mare barrow aubrey have you read those books yeah it's been a while but yes i read yeah. them i know tasia started that series and didn't finish 
Mare is similar in that she has hidden powers, but we get a lot more buildup to her reveal. And in that time, we get um, her her interactions with her family and her friendship. And she ends up being in the position where she is, where she reveals her power because of this sacrifice she's made to try to prevent her best friend from being conscripted into an army. So we get all this like building of who she is before the big reveal that she has power. And I just don't get that with Alina. And I, it's hard to really, for me to sympathize with her in a lot of ways, because I just don't know much more about her. I don't know. Aubrey, Aubrey, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think Alina for me is probably the least compelling character in this series, which is, you know, a problem when she's your main heroine. I think some of that does have to do with the fact that this is Lee Bardugo's first published series. Yeah. Which is why I think you can tell like the books get better as you go on. Yeah. I think that's also why there's some changes in some of the characters that feel to me like a little more abrupt. Yeah, she's just she's a little too blank lady. She's I mean most of her characteristics are she's very insecure. Mm-hmm. And she's like wrestling with what this power is, how she's handling that. And where she's going to go from there. And then she loves Mal. But also she wants to protect Ravka. And that's kind of the, you know, the conflict for her. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's interesting to note too, like compared to um, Lee's other books in this universe, this trilogy is told solely from Alina's perspective, which makes it really hard when you don't love her as much as I, I want to love her um, because you're only getting her POV. And, it, and and I think it means that all the other characters then are just not as developed as I would like them to be, or I don't know as much about them as I want to compared to like in the six of crows duology, all six of the, the titular crows ultimately get their own POV. So we're learning a lot about them. Um, and I think that that, it, again, I'm not going to hold anything against Lee Bardugo for her writing getting better and better because it does. She she has grown so much oh as a gosh. writer from this series. It's, yeah. it's insane. It's, it's incredible, but it, it does make it a little frustrating. You don't know much more about Alina. And, you know, I again, this chosen one narrative is, is something that comes up time and time again. Uh, but I think it for me, it's really important that... Like I, I love the message that anyone can be the hero of the story. And I think it, 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 she almost went like too far in the other direction with Alina for me in terms of her, her insecurities and how, how she thinks that she's not, she's not pretty. And she's, she's very plain and she just like really doesn't have a lot of, of, of personality at the beginning. And it's a little frustrating to read, but I do think that it is then in some ways good to have kind of this blank slate then to see how power affects her and how her, how she interplays with that because she in a lot of ways comes into her own because she has this power. So we learn early on, I think this is, is really interesting that she has had this power within her the whole time. It's not like she just like gets it and it's new. Children in, in Ravka are tested at a young age to see if they have Grisha powers. And Alina's did not manifest itself until this moment on the boat at the beginning of the first book. And it's we find out it's because she unintentionally was repressing it because she didn't want to be separated from Mal as a kid. They were all each other had at this orphanage. And as soon as she lets it out, she... It starts. To, she doesn't feel as sickly. Like she starts to look better. She, uh, she really comes in into her own 
um, after it manifests itself, which I think is a really interesting commentary on power, right? Like, oh, you're not even, you, you can't even be your like true self until you have this power release, which I think is interesting. interesting I don't know if I would say that necessarily. I think it's more of um, if you're holding a part of yourself back, like not necessarily power, but like if you're holding any part of yourself back that you are somehow you're less than your potential. So that could be kind of translated into a lot of different things. Yeah, that's true. I guess. I don't know. I think that that is just a, a really interesting way to like set up Alina and yeah, so when once she starts tapping into who she is as a Grisha, that is really helpful for her. But then immediately she's positioned as like this ultra Grisha, like she's so powerful. Um, she's already separated with it. She has this new community of Grisha that she belongs to, but she's like already separated from them because she's so powerful. There are no other sun summoners. She's the only one in history and she's you know jumping past all these other Grisha who go through this very formalized like training system to like to learn her power about her powers and ultimately be able to use them um so i think that is also really interesting as well and how she like fits in but still is different than the rest of the Grisha i think that that that's another interesting like turn that it takes but i don't know what what do you guys think then I, so ultimately what this book comes down to is is a, whether Alina is willing to accept this great power that she has and whether or not she wants to use it, whether or not she wants to embrace it. What do you guys think about that, that journey for her? Well, there's this trope in books that kind of rubs me a little bit the wrong way where like the heroine or the hero or whatever will take forever to accept this like power about themselves and just be, I don't know, so conflicted and struggle with it. Like, Oh no, I don't want to be, I don't want to be special. I don't want to be different. And meanwhile, I'm sitting here like, dude, you have to do like, this is just a part of you. You need to just get over it. And the fact that it takes so long for them to accept this thing about themselves. I don't know. It's a thing. It's a weird thing that I find kind of an annoying trope. What do you guys think? Yeah. I I mean, I think Alina, I don't know. It, it takes her a little while in the first book to accept that she is as powerful as she is. But then I feel like the rest of her story is about grappling with what it means to be that powerful so at least it doesn't stay in that trope for too long um so it doesn't bother me as much with this one as it does maybe in some other series that I've read yeah I I think that as well so the first book she is just it's like information overload for her right Mm -hmm. so she's lived her like whole life separate like in this orphanage and then her and Mal leave and they join the military. And then all of a sudden she's transferred to the capital and living like in this palace, which is way nicer than anywhere, ever, anywhere she's ever lived. None of the Grisha are being particularly nice to her. She's already being like separated out as, as other. Um, and she's being told by the darkling who one way or the other wants it, he, the intentions he put forward initially. And then what his ultimate intentions are both kind of the same is that he wants to, to use her power to get to his ultimate ends. And she only has the darkling then as a point of comparison to herself. And when she finds out, I think like midway through the first book that the darkling is, is not what he says that he is. He's actually this many, many, many hundreds of years old being that keeps pretending to, to die. And then that his heir takes over. It's really just him the whole time. And he has these goals of kind of mass domination 
her conflict then is, is she like the darkling? Is she too much like the darkling? Um, and, but I, I do like then, so it comes from like a natural place. It, it makes sense to me that she is resistant to it and she's resistant to it for like a really long time. And she keeps it kind of from the beginning has to, is you're confronted with the only option in a lot of times to use her power is not just for good. Like she ends up having to kill a lot of people kind of from the early, from the end of the first book, she destroys a whole bolt full of people to save Mal and to get them out of there so that they can run away. Um, so I do think it's somewhat more interesting to me that her power struggles in this book do kind of sometimes straddle that line between good and evil. And that's like a big internal discussion that she has with herself through a lot of the books as well. And I think that um, I'm just going to like dive into here. My um, defense of, of male. Oh yeah. We're going to disagree <laughs> on this one. But I think so this, the, another way that this trilogy is very similar to its contemporaries and thankfully is a trend that we're moving away from in YA fantasy stories is like a love triangle. I don't like love a love triangle. It's immediately going to be just very divisive amongst the fandoms. I, I, shipping wars is not something I'm like, I just don't have the time or energy for it, but I'm going to do it here. It's, Lee made me do it. I love, I, I like male and I, he has some problems here um, for sure. But I think that those problems stem in a lot of ways from the fact that he has to be the counter to Alina's like internal thought processes on her her power and what it means for her and i think that in a lot of ways in book two in particular mal is totally an asshole i will admit that he is an asshole he does not he just wants them to leave he does not like being at the at the palace he he doesn't like court he He's a, a military guy. That's where he belongs. He's a tracker. He doesn't like this courtly life. But he also just is afraid of what this is all going to mean for Alina. And in a lot of ways, I think he he's right to voice a lot of that. She's in, thinking through a lot of it, too, is how dangerous this is going to be for her and whether or not this is this power that she has is ultimately going to change her. And so I, I kind of get that he has to be that kind of foil for her to like think about those things. And I think that in a lot of ways that he's right. Aubrey, tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> I just, oh man. You guys, I wish you guys could see like Corinne literally just ducked out of frame. <laughs> like, she, dropped, she dropped that last sentence and then just ducked. <laughs> I mean, my, so my, my biggest problem with Mel is I do think it's that part where he talks about like, would you, if I could rip that power out of you, would you let it go? And like you talked about earlier, Elena, before she embraces that power, that part of herself, she's not healthy. I mean, she can't, she can't keep up with anyone. She has no endurance. She doesn't taste food like normal. I mean, there's so much of her that's just diminished. And so I feel like he in order to be with her is asking her to diminish herself again. And I think of all people, like he's seen that. So he should know what, what he's doing. And it really just bothers me. I mean, my bigger problem with Mal is that, I mean, he's the Riley of this series. He's just super boring. And so I don't know, like, I'm like, okay, cool. Mal is, yeah. I mean, he's like in the real world, you're like, oh, Mal is obviously like the better boyfriend choice like he's the nicer person but he's just not a super interesting character to me either and the few moments where he like really 
gets big moments in those first two ones, I feel like he really needs Alina to be like more reliant on him and to feel like he's more the protector in order for that relationship to function. And that just doesn't work for me. And I'm not even like super swoony about this series or like shippery about it. I just don't love Mal. I mean, I, you can totally see from the beginning that like that's end game and that's fine. He's just not my favorite. And I think that flip that he makes in Ruin and Rising where he does become a more likable person, it just doesn't work for me. Like it's so sudden and I know that there is an explanation there, but like that doesn't ever click for me. I feel a little bit like Lee went back and read those first two books and was like, (laughs) dang it, I screwed this up. I've got (laughs) to fix it. And she's talked in interviews since then about how like she has some regrets about how she handled Mal's character in those first ones. So, I mean, I think it's there. I think too, this is, uh, this is kind of what I'm talking about when I say that the, the lack of other POVs in this book is to the detriment of basically every other character, because we don't get any way to know what Mal goes through. And I agree his shift then in Ruin and Rising is very abrupt. Lee writes herself like a little escape hatch there that we like jump forward two or three months in time. And, you know, Alina has been being held separate from the rest of her crew during her imprisonment by the apparat. And I don't know what Mal goes through at that time. But I, I do kind of get where he's coming from in... Siege and Storm. I don't know that it's that he only likes Lena when he like can protect her. I I think all he knows about her power, right, is she displays power. She's immediately taken by the Darkling, who no one can trust. And he is right, by the way, not to trust the Darkling. So that's power display number one. He can't communicate with her anymore. He doesn't know this, but she's writing him letters that the Darkling is keeping from her um so one way or the other he he doesn't know what's going on with her he's he's scared for her and then the next time she uses her power is to escape at the end of the first book and she has to like kill a lot of people to do it so obviously like the power that she is displaying is also putting her in in a very dangerous position i don't think it's so wrong to not want that person that you really care about to be in this position where she's not going to be herself anymore these two though i think just really have like a really big lack of communication problem like he never knows how does he know that like the fact that she was the way she was before which he did like her the way she was before too by the way but how he doesn't know that she was unintentionally repressing her power to be with him. Like they never talk about any of these things. So like, I'm going to defend Mal. They both have their problems. They're both incredibly jealous and they don't talk about anything or like trust anything about each other. It's very immature for most of the second book. And it's very frustrating to read. Uh, But I think sometimes you do need to like have a big fight like that. so you can like reset and like be who you need to be as, as a couple, which is what happens for them in the third book. So yeah. I'm going to be kind of a weenie and agree with both of you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I do. Uh, God, Aubrey, you said that he is the Riley of this series, and now I cannot unsee that. Like, I, I Karen, don't know you who need, that is. You need to watch uh, Buffy. Oh, he Buffy. is Sorry. In, season, okay. in season four and season five-ish. Um, he is Buffy's boyfriend, and he is just without a doubt, the most boring. And he's also a soldier. And she also definitely diminishes herself to be with him. And he's very like, um, 
kind of against her power and stuff. But I think the difference here is that um, when Riley met Buffy, she was she was always empowered, you know, like he didn't know who she was at first, but he knew her basically as this empowered person. Mal grew up with Alina and they spent their whole lives together before her having this power. So I think his kind of grappling with that power is a little bit more understandable than say Riley, who is expecting this person who's always been powerful to be less because she's with him now. I think you're both right in a lot of ways. I'm a little bit more harsh on Mal than maybe Corinne is, but I think I'm less harsh on Mal than, <laughs> than Aubrey is. So I'm, I'm Switzerland. <laughs> I will say part of my defensive mail is, you know, this series is really, really popular. Um, there's a lot of online fandom about this series. There's a lot of Tumblr posts going on about the series. And this is probably the most divisive I've ever seen a fandom be about love interests. And what Oh, Buffy, girl, watch Buffy. I know, <laughs> I know. Okay, from my Let me tell you about those wars. Okay. Oh my gosh, I, yeah. Sure, and I, I, I get it. But in terms of like why fantasy, like this is very polarizing. And it's not just like a situation where people are like, oh, I prefer this one to the other. Like it's not a gal or PETA type situation where it's like, okay, I, I have these reasons. Like they're both f- fine in that book. What bothers me is that people think of Mal as this like very like overly like masculine, like you just kind of like this very toxic guy. And then the flip side of that is the Darkling, which we'll talk about, who I think is the most toxic. So I agree. I don't think these are the swooniest books when we talk about swoon-worthy things. I'm not going to be talking about Mal and Alina much. Um, I find my my swoon moments from other people in this series. But a lot of my defense is just like, how can you a response think that this person is so bad? takes from the rest of fans. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Well, that's- yeah. And I think it, I think there's just like a lot of people are like, I can't believe, you know, she ended up with, with Mal, blah, blah, blah. These books start, every single book starts with a before and after chapter that's told from a third person POV versus the first person Alina POVs we get throughout the rest of the book. And they're all about Mal and Alina. So the fact that anyone thought it was not going down that path, like I'm concerned about the effect that reading about the Darkling has had on these people is <laughs> Ultimately, I guess what I'm thinking. It's like they've abandoned all critical thinking skills because they've just been taken by him. But I to turn back to the pointed issue here, I, I do think it is interesting how they both kind of look at Alina's powers and what it, it means. And and again, the, I don't say this from a defensive male perspective. But in a lot of ways, he's right to be concerned in the second book because at the end, that's the first time we really see Alina embrace her powers. I have powers. I'm going to use them. But she, what she decides to do at that moment is to tries to kill herself and the Darkling at the same time. She thinks that's the way she's going to bring him down. And her internal ruminations are at that point that she's just as bad as the Darkling, which is not ultimately the end goal here. But so I she's right. And I think that's kind of where Mal's coming from at that point is that this power is potentially going to turn her into this person that neither of them want her to be. At least that's kind of like how my, my read on it goes. I mean, I like, again, I like that she's finally taking control more at the end of book two, but I, she's got it wrong. I think at that point as to whether or not she can be something different than the darkling. Yeah. I guess 
a little bit my feeling about that is that I'm not sure that Mal's reaction to her power isn't part of why she feels like she's just as bad as the darkling that he's pushing her in that direction too i mean i i really i don't like mal that much and i don't find him super interesting i think we would have really benefited from some povs from him and then maybe like i would like him a lot more or be a little more i'm not completely unempathetic to him but um yeah you know i just he frustrates me and then for him to be like the final love interest i'm just like oh all right <laughs> this part yeah. really annoys me yeah uh-huh. i do do wanted to spring this up though because i think this is one of like the key pieces of evidence people use against mail all the time which is when he kisses zoya oh he i don't like- you <laughs> who cares yeah i mean yeah so so Zoya, by the way, Zoya is like a big part of this universe generally going forward. So I think we need to talk about her. She is um, the Darkling's favorite at the beginning of this series. She is, oh, she she's a summoner, right? She's a squalor, right? Is that what they call she's them? She's a squalor, yeah. Yeah, so she can like control the wind. And she's very beautiful. And in the first book, she passes through their military camp and her and Mal lock eyes and it's confirmed in the third book that they do hook up. Um, so in the second book, when like Mal and Alina are on the outs, uh, it's very much like it's Ross and Rachel, like we were on a break. Like they were like not speaking at the time. Um, but he he does kiss Soya in front of Alina and it sucks, I know. But like, okay, at the same time, these two are like 18. So this is again, we have to think about the fact that these are YA books. And I'm just gonna say, like, if we can forgive a lot of other people in these series that or these books that we've read, for instance, if we can forgive Tanner in autobiography for sleeping with his best friend when he breaks up with his boyfriend, I think we can the Zoya kiss does not bother me as much. Oh uh, yeah. That that's never been one of my problems okay, good, with good. now. I'm like <laughs> He's just a boy reacting and like lashing Mm -hmm. out and Zoya is throwing herself at him because she's got her own sort of like damage that she's dealing with. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, apparently he's very handsome. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, That just, I'm like, it's fine. I mean, how many times does Lena kiss the darkling? Like, I don't think she has room to be angry. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That honestly. Yes, I agree. I am. I think you mentioned it earlier, Corinne. I think it was you um, talking about how this might be adapted because, as you guys know, it's going to be made into a television series on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And Lee has said that it is kind of a looser adaptation. Like there, there are a lot of changes. So I'm curious to see if there's going to be kind of a retcon of Mal's character. And I hope that they do make him a little bit more interesting and a little bit more likable so that that relationship makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. Yeah, We're going to do some like theorizing about the show at the end. um, And I want to kind of save a lot of that discussion for them because I think we have to get into more spoilers as to the rest of the universe to talk about it. But I, yeah, I'm really interested to see what they're going to do with him. And I'm really interested to see what they're going to do with the darkling as well. So let's, let's like pivot now, I guess, into, into the darkling and how he's kind of the opposite of Alina in a lot of ways and, and issues with him because I, I think that that's another part of the show that I think could be really different. I'll say this. So oh, we'll say this again right now. This is right here. The main reason we invited you here today. <laughs> because Tej and I hate the darkling. I hate him so much. 
And I will say that I liked him a lot more in the first book before the end, before he like yeah. collars her and then destroys an entire vote, like it goes yeah. and, and does a genocide, basically. <laughs> um before then, like I can totally get the appeal. Oh, for um sure. I think he is for sure hot. I think the whole um God, what is that line? Like, find that make me your villain. I think it's all it's all working Woo! for me. Yeah. On a very, yeah. very big level. Like, and I am not one that is not for problematic shipping. Like, we talk about Buffy ship wars. I ship Spike and Buffy, and a good half, solid half of the fandom thinks he is the apps. I mean, he is pretty toxic and terrible, but I, I love him anyway. So I'm not averse to bad boys, let's say. But yeah, I think it's, he loses me when he collars her and does does big murders at the end of book one <laughs> does a murder yeah yeah um, I, we wanted to give us some positives of the darkling we'll let you sure yes so i think the darkling i think the reason why i love the darkling so much as a character is because in so many ways he's not wrong like the lansoffs are horrible they've been horrible to all the people they don't care about them and Lee wrote this short story, Demon in the Woods, that you can find that gives, like, some background on his childhood. So when the Darkling was a kid, when he and, like, Bagra are running around, Grisha are hunted by everyone. You know, Ravkins, Fyrdens, Shu, like, nobody likes the Grisha. They all are afraid of them. They think they're they're witches and they're um, tormented. But in addition, the Darkling has to hide from other Grisha because he's an amplifier. And so, you know, at that point, they could kill him and turn him into their own amplifier, make themselves more powerful. So he's he's constantly having to, like, hide himself. He's never able to have real relationships with people. And I think it it's an incredibly lonely existence. And then he's lived hundreds of years, which means he just sees people die constantly. And I think that there's a bit where, like, a single human life, it's hard to value it in the same way when you just see them go again and again and again, and you're just constantly enduring that loss where for him, the end justifies the means. Like those people that he kills at the end, if it means that in the future, all Grisha will be safe always, that he'll be able to keep them always valued, always able to go to a place like that he'll do whatever it takes to get to that. And I think the appeal for Alina, I think you see some actual moments of vulnerability. I don't think he's putting those things on with her because I don't think he's ever had someone who could potentially be a partner to him in any way. I mean, he's got Bagra, he's got his mother, but that relationship seems complex. And also she's kind of turned him into this person. And so I just, I find that really heartbreaking in some ways, the way that that like constant search for safety has turned into the fact that he thinks that only he can be the one to provide that and that he'll sacrifice anything to do it. And it's not just like Ravka and Grisha that he's protecting, but all Grisha who are hunted still in other parts of the world. And so like, of course he thinks he has to conquer the whole world and it, uh, in order to make them safe, it's, it's the only thing. And he's the only one who would be around long enough to ensure that he's seen good Kings followed by horrible weak ones and like the one there. So he doesn't trust anyone anymore. I don't know. Yeah. I just, it, it breaks my heart a little bit. I'm not necessarily like a dedicated dark Lena shipper. And I don't really love the idea that like a woman's love can redeem a man, but I wish that he could get to that point to find that redemption because I think that there is 
good in the darkling. I just think that it's been frozen a little bit by that that loneliness and that trauma. Yeah. So everything you're saying is exactly why I love like a dark, like anti-hero in a lot of books. We talk about this all the time. Like, you know, Tasia and I talk about these books where we like totally like ship the God of death. Like we're not above, I don't, I, I don't want to speak for but like I'm not above like being into something like that. My problem with the, this book, and again, Lee's writing has gotten so much better throughout all this. I just don't think she does the work in this series to get him there for me. You know, that short story, that's great, but like that is outside of the book. So, you know, all we get in terms of like his motivations is what he tells us and then what Bagra tells us. And I don't think just like kind of one or two conversations she has with Alina for me did enough work to offset all of the terrible things he does in the book. It was really interesting to me. So my copy of uh, Ruin and Rising has interview with Lee. Actually, this this whole box that I have has really great bonus materials. It has a short story at the end, but it has a interview with her at the end of the series talking about about the Darkling and Alina and how she kind of came to her end. And I think it's really interesting for what she says about the Darkling. I'm just going to read it. As for the Darkling, I wanted to create a leader who was charismatic, appealing, a dictator you could imagine yourself following, an antagonist you couldn't just dismiss. If I had wanted readers to turn on him, I would have had him just drown a puppy or I would have pulled a Darth Vader and had all that evil seep through his pores. But that felt like a cop-out. The Darkling is beautiful and broken and had a rough childhood, but he's also a brutal, manipulative monster with no regard for human life. He's dangerous because he's seductive because he evokes sympathy. I never wanted that to be easy on the reader. I don't think she does. For me, she doesn't get, she doesn't do that the first half. If I, I if I want him to be evil, I just would have had him draw him a puppy. Okay. Well, you don't have him draw him a puppy, but you have him do a genocide at the end of the first book when he like wipes out that whole village. You have him it just, it, for me too, the situation where he pretends to be male in the second book and like comes to Alina in her bed and like kisses her and she thinks it's male. And she says like, male, I wanted you to come back. And then he's like, surprise, it's the dark thing very not cool with that so like I I just I I want I want to reread that scene where it goes exactly like surprise it's the darkling (laughs) (laughs) I get everything that she's saying I just don't think she points to Darth Vader I'm like Darth Vader to me has more of a redemption arc than the Darkling does in this book like where we don't get any inclination at the end that he still has that humanity in him and that's what I needed like other than his feelings towards Alina which yes might be in some way inspired by this connection he has he does I, I agree that he is lonely I agree that he has lost himself in a lot of ways that's why he tells her her his true name which is Alexander and he asks her to call him that at the end I think his death scene is very effective I just don't get enough for him that's on the balance of that in the books themselves to make me feel much more sympathy for him before that point I think it's I think it's there. I think I'm this one I'm really most excited about in the show. I have texted you two both countless times. Any basically anytime Ben Barnes, who's playing the Darkling on the show, posts anything on Instagram, I was like, I am ready to be trash for the Darkling. I'm he's gonna yeah. do so much work to make the Darkling like really yeah. appealing. Right. Yeah. And when you read the inner well, we'll talk about this later, but yeah, when you read his interviews, I, I think he's gonna do a lot. Yeah, I mean, for me, that part does work. I mean, I didn't read Demon in the Woods, a short, short, short story until like much later after I'd read the trilogy. Okay. So, um, I mean, at that point I was already kind of like, 
I don't think, I, I mean, this is the, the truth. I don't think that he and Alina should end up together. Yeah. Um. I mean, I do. I like, I think that caller, I don't think that was, I do believe him that that wasn't his original intention, that if she had been a willing partner, he would have let her put it on, but then she runs and he can't like trust that he can convince her to do what he yeah. needs her to do anymore. Yeah. I think my problem too is like every time they have like maybe like a nice moment, and again, I think I just wanted like some indication from him as to like his intentions to like unify the Grisha and everything. He just doesn't like talk about it enough for me to like really get on board with him. But my problem is like literally every time he interacts with Thelina, so like they have this connection, right? Where they can like kind of travel to each other. It's very like Kylo, Ren, and Ray in the newer Star Wars movies where they can like kind of travel to each other and talk to each other every time he does that they have like kind of a nice moment and then he just turns around and like is the dark thing again like he tells her his name it's a very vulnerable moment right, and then the he turns to you but like so he tells her that and then he immediately uses the cut on her the cut is like this thing that they both can do where they literally like cut people in half with their powers and he like doesn't kill her because it's just like a vision of her coming to him but like he, he he does that all the time. Like every single thing he ever says to her, Tasha, I think you wrote this down in the notes somewhere. He's like, I'm going to strip you of everything you love. And like, it's just like, I yeah, want- for me, that line is the most like, like oh. if the genocide didn't do it for me, if the collaring didn't do it for me, um, it's, it's this line where he says, I will strip away all that, you know, all that you love until you have no shelter, but me. And for me, that is the most, like I've been in that relationship and that is, and maybe that's just my own personal trauma talking, but I read that and my stomach drops. Like I, it, it's like a visceral reaction I have to that line. I don't yeah. like it. I am really hopeful that I like. I do see this. The seeds are planted. I'll agree with you. Like there, Aubrey. It, it just didn't. It doesn't work for me. Again, I went into this though, kind of being aware of the fact that there was this kind of divide between male and the darkling, and I knew that the darkling. Even before I'd read Six of Crows, I had heard of The Darkling. And I should say, I read The Six of Crows duology before I read the trilogy. So I was already kind of like wading into Tumblr and like looking at things after I read the duology. And you just see there's so much Darkling stuff out there. Like the fandom loves him. So I kind of went into it. And then I was reading, I'm like, really, this guy? So I agree that the seeds are there. I just want, I want more from him because I love a character like this. I, I want to like see see the good in him you know we've talked a lot about what makes a villain interesting is that like their their goals are are good they sound good i want more of that from him and i want more of an indication that he perhaps does like alina besides for her power because to me like every time they have a conversation then because i don't get as much from him in terms of what he likes about her because then he's like trying to like kill her just manipulate manipulate her it takes away from all of of their interactions that they have together but i'm i'm fully interested and invested in yeah him. i really don't blame fans for like extrapolating all of this from the darkling like what's mo- more than what's on the page because you can see like you said the seeds of it are there but i do agree that i think more work needs to be done to make that happen and i'm very hopeful that that the show will get us there yeah yeah, I mean, I think Glee takes this sort of like dark character and does it better in later books, honestly. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think she's got the capability. And I think it's another one where like if we had Darkling POV chapters, I think that 
it would be helpful. I do, I think, yeah, the Alina stuff just limits it. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think every time you see like him talk about like wanting is bad, I think he's constantly like in this push pull between like wanting that partnership with Alina and then like needing to achieve his goals. But it is not hugely developed. I will, I will not argue with okay. that. Um, Fair. I think just like his exhaustion, even that line, like, fine, make me your villain, which is so great. But like he says it, he's weary. It's not like yeah. an attitude thing. It's just like, I'm so tired. Fine. This is where I am. Yeah. I, I do agree that he, I, I see the fact that he has just been like worn down by his years. I totally see that. I do. This is one of my questions. So like he and Alina have, you know, a lot of conversations, particularly in the third book when they, this is the, again, the conversation where he tells her his name and then he tries to use the cut on her. But before they get to that point, he talks about the fact that like, he thinks Alina is the only one who can balance him. And he does seem, I agree, like kind of desperate in that moment, like help, <laughs> like yeah. help me. I, I can't do this. I want to do this thing that is essentially very good. And it is kind of refreshing, I think, for me to have a villain acknowledge that. But again, for me, it's like, is that the only reason he wants her? Like, you know, he only likes her for power, blah, 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 blah. But do we think there, is there enough here that like, okay, what if Alina had been like, sure, Darkling, I'm, I'm down with this. Like, let's, let's make a go of it here and like try to make the world a better place. I, is he too far gone at this point? Do you think there is like another point where perhaps if it had been a couple hundred years earlier, like Alina, him could have like pulled this off together? What do you guys think? Yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. I think a couple hundred years earlier, if Alina had walked into it, it would be an entirely different situation. I know I do love that line where he's like, I think you could make me a better man. And she's like, I think you could make me a monster. Um, yeah. yeah that's really oh my God. That's line. like their relationship in this whole power struggle in a nutshell, right? Yeah. And I, I think that's in that same time before he like tells her his name in Ruin and Rising. It's definitely in Ruin and Rising. Yeah, I don't I don't know. But there's a part of me that hopes for it. And it's interesting because in some ways I think we haven't talked about him much yet, but like as much as the power makes Darkling and Alina like two different sides of the same coin, I almost think like the Darkling and Nikolai are in many ways like two sides of the same coin because Nikolai is also willing to like lie to get certain ways and, and to use people at certain points. And he also believes that he can make Grisha safe and he can rule once Ravka to be better. Oh, that's really interesting and a great pivot to my favorite character in the whole of the Grishaverse. I mean, <laughs> yes, this is where we will agree because Nikolai <laughs> is my favorite. Like I'm always, the rogue is always my favorite character. Mm. Oh yeah, great. same. I think there's this really great Goodreads review on, uh, I think, Siege and Storm where some, somebody wrote, uh, Nikolai, honey, how does your back feel after carrying that whole book? <laughs> <laughs> It's just, it's so accurate though, because I mean, he is, come He's, on, who doesn't love that, that like roguish kind of fiendish, fiendish uh, charmer. Yeah. He's the yeah. injection of levity and fun into this series that the first book is sorely lacking, I think. And what I love about him too, just besides him being great, is he pulls out a lot from Mal and Alina. 
like I agree they're both kind of duds in the first book book and a half but as soon as Lena comes on the scene they're kind of like unified in their annoyance at him but like in a fun way (laughs) there's this one line in Siege and Storm where uh, like Mal's getting ready to go on like this hunting party or something and he says to Alina and there's no way I'm leaving you alone with Prince Perfect and she goes so you don't trust me to resist his charms and Mal goes I don't even trust myself I've never seen anyone work a crowd the way he does I'm pretty sure the rocks and trees are getting ready to swear fealty to him it's like that's Nikolai in in a nutshell and that's why I love him but I, I want to turn back to this idea of like him being a counter to the darkling and his power that's really like interesting and compelling so like Nikolai is not Grisha he has no powers he's like purely a mortal man he is um, a bastard we find out he is not actually the son of the king of Rafka he um, his older brother Vasily is very much exactly the same as his father in a lot of ways that he's not a good king and he's going to, uh, Vasily's not going to be a good king either. Uh, and Nikolai really wants to unify Ravka and be the king that everyone deserves. And, but he, at the same time, you're right. He has to like lie, manipulate his way there. I've never like thought about him in comparison to the Darkling. That's so interesting. Aubrey, do you have more thoughts on that since you brought that up? Yeah. Um, I think it's not something that I thought about until I was doing this reread. Um, and part of it is, I think, with Nikolai, I mean, you see it a little bit with Alina, too, but these are people who have actual friends yeah. and, like, a community and a relationship. And I think that it influences his actions. So I think they have the same similar goals, but because Nikolai has served in the army, you know, with actual people and and seen regular old Ravkins die in service of the country. So he knows the costs, I think, a little bit more intimately. And then he has his crew as Sturmond and he's got Tamara and Tolia. And then eventually he has Alina and Mal as friends as well. I think it grounds him a little bit better. And it makes me wonder like, what would the Darkling, yeah, what would the Darkling have been like if he'd had and Alina, a community. a yeah. community at the beginning, a place where he could feel like a part of them. Because I think it gives him a similar goal, but an awareness of the costs in a way that the just like the Darkling has sort of lost touch with. And I'm not sure ever really had because it seems like he's always been sort of alone except for Bagra. That's really that's really interesting. And I think it kind of circles to what I think is probably like the secondary theme of this book after power is like the sense of belonging versus loneliness. Um, it's something that is, is woven through all of these books. You know, Alina is so drawn to the darkling at the beginning and, and to this world he's offering her because she's been alone with just male, like her whole life. And she doesn't feel like she fits in anywhere. And that's part of the big appeal for her. Um, and Mal feels that too, I think in a lot of ways. And that's a really interesting way of like how that all plays a, a, a part here is it, it and in then Alina's own relationship with her powers because her powers and her own struggles with them internally bring her to a community and that she ultimately is friends with Nikolai and, and Genya and Zoya and uh, David and all these other Grisha that she she comes into contact with and um, yeah that's really interesting how that how that plays out 
I, I like that a lot. Uh, and, and I think we get more of that going forward. Um, we'll talk more about Nikolai in our like spoiler section today because he gets his own duology, which we're in the middle of right now. So we're going to get more development of him going forward. But I, I'm excited to see him continue to be on that journey. One of my favorite moments in this series is this conversation that Alina and Nikolai have about just kind of this what we were just talking about, about how Nikolai has to act and like shade who he really is. And I don't think he knows in this trilogy yet, like who he really is yet. And I think it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how he continues to, to go forward with that. And he also has this like truly horrifying moment where the darkling like turns him into this monster being actually the only, the closest I got to crying in this series is when he's like this monster being and he goes and he finds Lena and he's like tried to propose to Lena a couple of times because he wants her. He's like marrying a saint is really going to like just solidify my power in the eyes of the people. Like it's going to be great. And she's just like, I'm absolutely not going to do that. <laughs> but like when he, so he gives her uh, this emerald. That's like the, this family heirloom that he's like, one day I'm going to actually ask you to marry you with that ring. And she has it. And he's this like bird man monster. And he like flies down to her and, and she like shows it to him. And she's like, I'm Alina. I'm Alina. Cause she, he can't speak or anything. And he puts it on her hand. Oh, poor little Nikolai. He, he knows who she is at that point. And it's, it's, it's a really it's nice, so sad. Yeah, nice scene. I really like their friendship and where they end up on things. I do just want to briefly like point out, I think to kind of wrap things up in a bow is that I do like where Alina ends up with her power and right how she kind of like comes to accept at the end to the point where she will kill the only person she's ever loved to fully embrace it and try to save and save the world from the darkling that the end of this book really works for me. Book three overall really works for me. I really like that. I really like Rune and rising. I think it's the most like Lee's later books. Um, I think everything's just fleshed out really well. And I, I like that she embraces it fully and realizes the good she can do with it and is willing to do it, but then loses it. And the moment in like the epilogue where she and Mal are together and she, he talks about how he often finds her like, you know, standing by a window, like letting the sunlight come through and like playing with it through her fingers. Like, oh, it just, it really makes me, it makes me sad to think about how she had this power and she finally embraced it and then lost it. But I think it did give her in a lot of ways, the confidence that she needed to kind of be herself and feel good about herself. And I, I like how it all ultimately plays out and she pays the ultimate price with it. Good, good for you, Lena. I, I did like her by the end. There was more to her there at the end, I thought. It's better when she has more friends. Yeah. So, like, let's talk about superlatives now because we didn't talk about any of the friends who are far and away my favorite part of this series when basically, like, book three becomes almost like a buddy comedy road trip in a lot of ways because they're, like, on the road for a lot of it trying to find this third amplifier and and how it's now. All right. So, let's do favorite quote. Corinne, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. So I, well, I originally wrote down everything Nikolai Lantzoff says ever, which is really <laughs> true. He, I, I honestly could, everything he says is so funny. He's so great. I, but I do like, oh, here's in this line though. This is what he says uh, to Alina. I want to kiss you, Nikolai said, but I won't. Not until you're thinking of me instead of trying to forget him, which is, is great. And I, I, I want Nikolai to find love and we'll talk about that in the spoiler section a little bit more. 
I do really like one of the most kind of some really most powerful moments for me in the male and Alina uh, love storyline is at the end of the second book where they're like totally on the outs, but she's about to like try to sacrifice herself to kill the darkling. And she says to him, I have loved you all my life, male. There is no end to our story. Works for me. Right, Aubrey. Sure. So mine actually, I think comes from, is it Genya or Genya? I've never like, I've I don't know either. I yeah. think Jenya sounds better, so I want to go with Jenya. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how I said it in my head when I was reading it. But she's talking to the king after it's sort of like come out what she did to him and what he did to her. Um, and she says to him, I am not ruined. I am ruination. And I just... We'll talk more about Jenya in a minute. That's a Goosebumps line. It's but so like, good. Yeah. It gives me Goosebumps just saying. Yeah, it's, it's a really good line. It's so empowering. I love it. I love it for her. Yeah. yeah. And Tasia, what about you? What are your favorite lines? Um, yeah, it's basically that. And also, I mean, I think fine, make me your villain is an excellent line as well. Yeah. I mean, and I'm ready to like lay down on the floor when Benton Barnes says that. Like, oh yeah. It's yeah. gonna be great. Uh uh-uh. <laughs> said that when she um visited set, Ben Barnes came up and whispered that in her ear, like she didn't know he was there and he came up behind her and just whispered, Fine, make me your villain. And she was like, Oh, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> Next thing I knew, I was pregnant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for it. Give it to me, Ben Barnes. Anyway, go ahead. Um, my other line is um it's just at the end and it's kind of where you know Mal and Alina that love story also works for me in this line, which is they had an ordinary life full of ordinary things. If love can ever be called that. And I think it's just a, a sweet, yeah, uh, like rumination on, on love. Totally. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's uh, talk about favorite character and favorite arc. Aubrey, why don't you start us off? Okay. I mean, Nicola is probably my favorite character. I'd like you said in the whole series, but I wanted to talk more about Zoya and Jenya. I think Jenya's arc is really my favorite. I mean, she starts as, and she may, she might be actually my favorite character, although I love Zoya. She starts as this person who is sort of separate from the rest of the Grisha. She has been given to the queen as like a tailor. Um, and she wears beauty as her armor and the king has taken advantage of her. Um, of the fact that she's a servant, like he's attracted to beautiful things. And then it turns out that she's been wearing poison lipstick that like slowly, but surely makes the King sick and sort of punishes him for his abuse of power. And so she serves the darkling because he's the one who's going to make her a part of things again. I mean, she's that same thing. She's separated from the rest of the Grisha because of where she is and because she's not really one of the fabricators and she's not really one of the corporalki and the rest of them don't really want to hang out with her. And so she forms this friendship with Alina and it seems real, but at the same time she's working with the darkling. And then that moment where she helps Alina get free of the darkling and she's punished for it. And the darkling takes away her beauty from her. And she comes out of that. I feel like even stronger, um, You know, she loses that part of her armor. Like, she can't ever fix those scars entirely, and she's lost one of her eyes. But she's just a queen in the end, and she is there in Ruin and Rising with Alina and with Zoya and with David, who still loves her and is finally, like, 
woken up to the fact because she's been in love with him the whole time. And just kind of when she embraces that, when she says that, I'm not ruined, I'm ruination. I just really love that she gets to that point to be fully part of the Grisha community and a leader and to acknowledge that her power is different, that she can train other people to be tailors and that there's value in the power that she uses yeah, that she's still one of them. So good. I, I just got like chills. I, that was a great summary of her character <laughs> and her arc. And yeah, she's, she's awesome. Yeah. yeah. The idea that she's being like raped by the King and she like poisons her skin and that's how she like poisons him. Like it's incredible. It's oh man. So when that reveal comes. Oh. Yeah. And then then what like Nikolai stands behind her. <gasps> I mean, yeah. I just, yeah, you know, Yeah. And then, yeah. then there's Zoya, who's like the snobby mean girl and the Darkling's favorite at the beginning. And she loses people she loves in the city that he destroys. And he didn't warn her. And she realizes that, like, she's not as valuable to the Darkling as he was to her. And so she she allies herself with Alina, a person she doesn't really like and hasn't really been very nice to. But you get this third part where they're like hanging out and having like girl time. And it's like Tamar and Zoya and Jenya and Alina and Ruin and Rising. And Zoya is still mean. Like <laughs> that is who she is. Like she's just abrasive. That's why I love that turn of Zoya is because she doesn't fundamentally change. Like she does the right thing because she sees like she gets new information and she's like, all right, well, I changed my mind, which is first of all, a very big thing to do to not really have any qualms about that to be like, all right, well, I was wrong about this thing. I'm going to realign myself with somebody else, but she doesn't fundamentally change at all. She's still that mean girl. She's still everything that she's ever been and kind of loves that about herself. And I love that about her. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Completely. And then at the end in the like epilogue chapter where like, it's, you know, Mal and Alina are in hiding, but you know, every year for, uh, Santa Nicolai's like feast day three Grisha come and visit them and it's implied that it's Zoya Genya and David and Zoya gives her a blue kefta kefta, like the robes that they wear the blue is the the color for the summoners of which Zoya is and at the beginning she was so resistant to having Alina be categorized as a summoner um because it's normally like wind and 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 fire not like uh not son Melina's alone who can do that but so she gives her an epilogue of blue kefta and with a note that says you will always be one of us unreal yeah so good it's just yeah that that is great i yeah i love them so yeah and jenya yeah Tasia, anything else to add on those two uh, no, not really. It's yeah. Zoya, Jenya, and uh, and Nikolai. Yeah, easy. So, like, Nikolai for me, too. I I do love you. We mentioned this briefly, but when he stands behind Genya, and like, she has basically admitted she admits to attempting to poison the king of Rafka, his father, quote unquote, father. He's a bastard, as we find out, but he stands behind her immediately, like, exiles his father, says, You're gonna go live in like the colonies away from all of this. Like, if you ever come back, you're standing trial for rape. It's such a good moment um, because it's so indicative of the type of king that he is going to be. So, yeah, I really like Nikolai too, just for his levity. I did put a little quote here of just how funny he is. This is like an example. I took a breath. Your Highness, Nikolai, he corrected. But I've also been known to answer to sweetheart or handsome. Oh, love him. I want to give a brief shout out to you because he's just a kind of, um, he's not like my favorite character by any means, but I like love everything he says in the third book. And it's this character named Harshaw, who is a Grisha. Um, what, what's it called when they 
what kind of when they do the the fire uh, inferni thank you an inferni he so he's with them after they escape the apparat and he has a cat who he like talks to all the time and he pretends that like the cat is he, he, he not pretends but like he like talks to the cat and it's it's clear that he's just a, a little bit off kilter there but he, everything he says is just so funny or like really profound two um like mal and alina are like fighting at one point in book three and he says something like on cat which is like a, a word that means just basically cat that's what he's named this cat he says on cat scratches me all the time funny thing is she likes to stay close and alina's like Harshaw, are you just being profound and you know he he has like some really great moments in the book in that way at one point zoya says something like maybe you're hungry i always get mean when you're hungry and he's like are you hungry all the time like, so he just has really great moments. He loves this cat. He he does die in the final confrontation with the Darkling. Ancat goes on to live with Mal and Alina. So pour one out for Harshaw, who is just a gem in this book and, and dies then. So he's not my favorite by any means, but I just wanted to give him a, a little recognition there. So those are our favorite characters. And let's talk about um, Swoon-worthy moments. Agree, this is not the Sooniest book in the world, but Aubrey, what is your favorite Swoon-worthy? I mean... The truth is, you know, the most swoon-worthy moment is me swooning over that library in the little palace when Alina sees it the first time. Um, Alina is all of us at that moment. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think it is the moment when the Darkling tells her his real name and is trying to be, like, slightly vulnerable to her and ruin and rising. And he pulls her closer and he's just, like, kissing on her neck. And I'm like, oh, this does work for me. But, like, also... No. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think because it's a rare moment of vulnerability with a character who is not very vulnerable. But yeah, like I said, this book just doesn't, I don't have a lot of swoon with it. And I think, Corinne, I think you're going to talk about a moment that like I read it and I was like, oh, yes, this this is an actual swoony moment. Yeah. So I'll talk about that now. So um, we talked briefly about David, who is along with, Kenya and Zoya, like they end up becoming, they call them the triumvirate, the three uh, Grisha who like uh, serve under Nikolai and like guiding all the Grisha in the second army. And he is very nerdy. He's like a material Kai. He like does a lot of like science things. Material Kai like deal with like objects and he is kind of the brainchild of a lot of things here and genya who is like beautiful uh, the most beautiful before she is um horrifically scarred and by the darkling um is in love with him from the beginning we find that out like early on he seems to pay her no mind and after you know she has this big reveal with the king he uh, David tries to comfort her and she says to him, you were never interested before I was broken. Now I'm just something for you to fix. And David, who like barely speaks in these books, he does not like to talk, says, I don't understand half of what goes on around me. I don't get jokes, just metal. Beauty was your armor. Fragile stuff, all show. But what's inside you? That's steel. It's brave and unbreakable and that doesn't need fixing. Ah, David. You dog, it's beautiful. Yeah, Absolute babe. Uh, such so a good, good. Such a good moment. She immediately like, kisses him after that. And later, like, they go to find him. They're in bed together. So I love it. And um, spoiler, I think, in uh, King of Scars, find out that they've gotten married. So it's very exciting. Good for them. I do also like to, I want to, again, because I can't help but be a shipper. It's who I am inside. 
from the in the very first book when Mal is about to die on the ship and before Lena's power manifests itself, he says to her, meet me in the meadow, which is something they always used to say to each other when they were kids. And it's just very sweet and a nice callback about how much they mean to each other. And it worked for me and hooked me in terms of shipping them. So there's my swoon moments in Tasia. So mine is um, actually, it was one of your favorite quotes, but it's when Nikolai's, I, I don't, to be clear, I don't really ship Nikolai and Alina, but um, I mostly just ship anything Nikolai says. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but when he says, I want to kiss you, but I won't, not until you're thinking of me instead of trying to forget him. Um, I think it's one of those like underrated moments that kind of brings to light how sexy consent can be. And it reminds me of, uh, not to bring it back to Buffy again, <laughs> but there's this line where um, like Willow is jealous about somebody else and she knows that Oz is into her. And she's like, hey, let's make out. And he's like, when I kiss you, I want you to be kissing me. And it's just one of the, it's, it's the swooniest, mo- one of the swooniest moments in Buffy. And it just makes you like, and the look on Willow's face too, when he says that to her, you're like, oh yeah. So, yeah, I think it's just one of those moments that makes you really think about how how sexy consent can be. I don't know how else to put it, but yeah. 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 Ugh, Oz, nice. my forever Buffy boyfriend. <laughs> He's the only good boy in that entire show. It's very true. Just, is this is this podcast just turning into like get current to watch Buffy fully? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like this maybe is, um, my plans are revealed. Uh, this <laughs> has a very long secretly- <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, Lee Bardugo is a huge Buffy fan, yeah. and she like references she? it in some of the interview. In the interview that I have the copy of Shadow and Bone, like she says, if she was going to a desert island, she would want Joss Whedon to be the one with her, which. Maybe she's changed her mind about in the ensuing years. Let's hope so. um, You know, I think she talks some Buffy's one of her favorite shows of all time. And I was like, oh, this makes so much sense now. Right. So how much you want to bet she's a spike and Buffy shipper? (laughs) I'm sure. A hundred percent. This is a good segue to get into our spoiler section here in a second. But there was a, I follow like all the cast of the show on Instagram and the guy who's playing male posted a picture of himself and the actress who's playing Alina. And he just captioned it saying, caption this photo. And Lee Bardugo commented on it and said, my caption is canon. And I'm like, yeah, Lee, like stand up for the ship you created. And she also did like the little like nail painting emoji. I was like, I love you, Lee. It's great. Um, Anyway, so let's turn now into our spoiler section. This is our big warning here. If you have not read uh, the Six of Crows duology or uh, King of Scars, turn back now. Um, We're going to be talking about our TV show predictions too, but they are woven in with the Six of Crows duology too. So um, if you don't want to hear about any of that, turn back now. This is your final warning, Um, but let's dive in. I love predictions. This is so fun. Um, oh my gosh. So let's talk about the show first. Because I am so curious as how they are going to interweave this trilogy with the Six of Crows duology, which happens, I think, two years after the fact in an entirely different country in this world. So what do you guys think they're going to do? I'm so curious how this is going to work out, but I kind of, I mean, what I would guess would be that it's going to be a parallel storyline thing happening where... 
there are some episodes or scenes that take place in Ketterdam and some that take place in Ravka. I'm going to guess that they're going to make these um, happening at the same time instead of two years apart, because I don't know how they would do that. Although it has been well, done in what? The Witcher did something like that, right? Yeah. One thing that I read is that they are almost prequeling Six of Crows, which is yeah. why like we don't have a casting for Wylan at all yet or... I don't think we have a casting for Kue either. Mm-mm. And we don't have casting for Nikolai. So none of them are in the first season. Yeah, And she I- said Nikolai is not in the first season. So I think it might be something where like we see, because Nina is a student at the Little Palace during all of this, because she talks about being at Karamzin when they evacuate the students there and being one of the ones taken hostage. So I don't know if we'll get some of that and then get her maybe like earlier getting sent to a mission and being with Matthias, Matthias in Fierda. Yeah. That was my one point of confusion. So yeah, I had seen, I think what you saw too, um, Aubrey that like it's being referred to as like six of crows point zero, like mm-hmm. as like a prequel type thing. But the Matthias thing is what's interesting to me because it's my understanding that Nina meets Matthias in between these two series um she starts working with zoya we know that from the the duology but then she meets matthias on one of those missions so i'm curious mm-hmm. to see like how they're going to weave that in um yeah. because that all should be I, if this is a prequel for all these the crows like it should be after so and we'll, we'll see maybe he's only in like one episode though or something yeah we get like a, a glimpse of like fierda or something um, yeah. I mean, I think they could have her as like a student there and then maybe just send her to Fierda much earlier, like daring yeah. this on a mission instead of waiting until afterwards. It would be interesting if like she maybe encounters Matthias before and then like later we get their their meeting and their escape together that we find out about in Six of Crows and there's like a point of recognition. Oh, yeah. And they might be making Nina a bigger character in the Shadow and Bone series than she actually was in order to send her off on this mission earlier and then have a reason to follow her and then follow her to Ketterdam, which would be maybe the, the link that the audience has to everything that's going on there. And that's how we meet everybody else is through Nina. So they would need to make Nina a bigger character in the first trilogy in that part of the story. Yeah, that's interesting. That'd, yeah. be, that'd be cool. Then what do you think we're going to, they're going to do in terms of some of these differences in like the darkling and Mal in particular with theories, thoughts. I mean, is she just going to like tone down Mal's like kind of douchiness? In the I, think middle? I think just a better balancing of both of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, give, give the darkling more interiority and more yeah. um, understanding of his motivation and give Mal you know, basically the same. Yeah, because yeah. I think, like I said earlier, I think when you read Kaz Brucker and Six of Crows in the duology, like you get how you can do like a really dark character in a much more complex way where you still see their humanity. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's just what she's trying to do with the dark lane and not quite hitting because because we don't see anything in his head. And I think we're going to get like more point of view with Ben Barnes. And Ben has said like he read these books before starting the show and he's even like brought in lines from the show and he feels like he has a really like sense of who this character is so i have a feeling he's going to bring a lot of empathy to the darkling 
as an actor, which I think will help too. Yeah. He's such good casting for this because I really think if anybody can bring that humanity and that empathy while keeping the the mystery and the kind of you know the sex appeal of him, I think it's it's Ben Barnes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. One of the things I think I'm interested in too is and this might kind of lead into how we can connect all these characters is I wonder how they're going to handle these like fictional countries that Lee has set up because I think her world building is great when it comes to the powers of the Grisha, but I think that this world that she has created is kind of bothersome to me. Again, these versions of the trilogy that I have have all these interviews with her in the background. And in the Shadow and Bone interview, the interviewer asked her how she decided on like Russia's inspiration. And she like it was very random. She said she'd like already started crafting this world and was like at a bookstore and was flipping through a book about Russia and was like this fits like the themes of kind of what I'm going for. And I don't think it's really flushed out. And I think she's gotten a lot of pushback on how she like picks and chooses and doesn't really like explore Russian culture and what it actually means in any real way. And then I do think particularly in the trilogy, it's not as jarring to me in six of crows or crooked kingdom, but like a lot of just like kind of stereotypical stuff about like, you know, what the people from what's it called shoe the shoe people, mm-hmm. like what their eyes look like. And they're like the one Asian character. And I don't really like that Novi Zen, like where Jasper, who we ultimately meet is from, is like very like kind of coded as the like American South and like how he is as one of the only like black characters is, is from there. So I'm wondering if they're going to like do away with a lot of that artificial, these artificial countries that she's created because I don't think it's particularly well done. It's a little cringy to me. And it kind of seems like they're maybe moving away from some of that um, in terms of the casting of Alina. um, I don't know her name. It's uh, Jessie something, right? Jessie. Jessie like May maybe. Yeah. So she's um, Asian. And, but then I read when I was like researching for this episode that they are, it's not even that they're just like, okay, we're going to have an Asian actress. They have specifically decided they're going to cast Alina um, and create her as half shoe mm-hmm. in this series. It's not even just like, oh, we're trying to broaden a representation. It's like, no, we're sticking with these, these countries. And it, I guess it is important to still have that particularly when it comes like to Crooked Kingdom. Jesse Maley. Jesse Maley. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. But so yeah, the end of, of, of Crooked Kingdom, like, you have to have different countries for like political alliances. Like that's why Nikolai ends up, you know, maybe marrying the shoe princess or whatever. But I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that they like tone down that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think the show will be able to like build cause we don't really spend any time in shoe. So we're getting like the barest right. bones description of that culture. Always in a villainous context too. Yeah. Yeah, which isn't great. No, great because it is the one like these are the Asian people. um, Yeah, I have some hopes with King of Scars with making the shoe princess like a more important character in that duology that we might get like a yeah fuller view in the books of that country. Well, let's talk then about King of of Scars, which Tej and I are going to cover. But while you're here today, Aubrey, I want to talk about the end of of King of Scars because as soon as I finished reading this, I like looked on Goodreads. I was like, okay, who the hell do I know has read this book? And I need to talk to them immediately <laughs> because I have so many thoughts. And I like immediately texted you. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> so, the end of King of Scars. Guess who's back? 
back again. Darkling. Surprise, back. it's the Darkling. Yeah. <laughs> I'm never letting you live that down. I love it. It's so good. <laughs> but like, okay, that's what happens. What the F? I like, is this Lee trying to Sunday morning quarterback the Darkling and like making him gonna like try to build within her own canon universe like some redeeming qualities to darkling is this the real darkling is it just a uh a, like a regeneration of him that's like different like what is going on yeah i mean his regeneration is like so brief at the end i have a yeah. lot of questions but i do think i mean my feeling is that he's probably diminished because they didn't just like resurrect the full darkling and it seems like part of his power is in Nikolai too um with the monster that keeps coming out again and again I mean yeah I think we're gonna get a little bit of like Darkling redemption and honestly like I'm so thrilled to watch the Darkling have to spar with Nikolai yeah especially get an interaction with them really in the trilogy so that'll be interesting no and to a certain extent I I just wonder like how that could change things for the Darkling because he's only sees the Lansovs like Vasily and the King. I mean, he doesn't know Nikolai at all other than like the sort of face that he puts on. So watching the Darkling like reckon with someone who is honestly just as smart as he is and just as committed to like eventually having the Grisha like protected and then like an immensely stronger Zoya who's probably equal in strength to the darkling like full power now after what she's gone through in king of scars i think it could be really interesting having to like reckon with the damage he caused in these people's lives and actually like see it and other grishas but also himself become a tool again that's being used by someone to save ravka in the middle of like everything that's going on yeah i don't know yeah i think it could be interesting so i i'm open really to any possibilities i think is where i've landed except I don't want any involvement with Alina. Like, let that lie. Yeah, I mean, my... It almost could be kind of hard not to, though, because she was his main foil in his original series. So, but it it almost would feel weird for her to not... I know she doesn't have her powers anymore. There's really nothing she can do to fight him, but it would feel kind of weird if she if they didn't at least approach her or tell, like if she didn't make some sort of appearance, because I feel like it would be hard to have her not feel a sense of responsibility about that. Even if she can't do anything about it, just because they were each other's main antagonists and because they had that pull towards each other too. Yeah. Although I don't know, I don't feel like they even mention in King of Scars. I don't think like Alina's mentioned in King of Scars at all. Like they don't even like reference her, which is going to be weird. Is she? I don't remember. Oh, you read it most recently. Nikolai, Nikolai t- I kind of think, I think he's thinking to himself about how he like misses her and he's kind of mm-hmm. thinking about how that was like, oh, like the one that got away almost before they get deeper into the Nikolai and Zoya stuff. Yeah. yeah. So Alina is kind of the one who got away. Yeah. that It'll be interesting. I mean, so she switched finally in Six of Crows and then continues in King of Scars which, with the differing POVs. So I'll be interested to see if we get Darkling POV because that will be some interesting, uh, some interesting development. I know um, a friend of the pod, Leah, who we all know was just recently reading this and, and posted something about how like is the all this talk about like the darkling being a saint and the religious fervor around him like is it a pr- specific response to like the darkling shippers and the people who are like obsessed with him in the trilogy 
I, I think that that is just the only thing that makes me nervous is that it all is like a lead up to try to like to make him a more redeeming character because she doesn't feel like she did enough in the first trilogy or something, which I guess like, okay, fine. I often wish that some, some books that I like a lot of, I kind of wish the the author could rewrite them. I wish Lee could having the skills and capabilities she has now would rewrite the the trilogy. I'd <laughs> love it. I'd love to get yeah. other people's POVs. So I, I, I'm cautiously optimistic about how the Darkling reveal is going to go though. Um, and I think the other big thing that we have to look forward to in what is it going to be called? Rule of Wolves. Is this the second book's going to be called? I think so. Yeah, that's something about right. that, which is weird. I'm like, who are the wolves? I'm very confused. But I loved. There was some fun Zoya Nikolai foreshadowing in Rune. I'm so into it. I'm so <laughs> into it. This is my, yeah. they're my favorite ship of all of the Grishaverse, which is saying a lot because I, as we'll learn next week, I have deep chasmish feelings. But like at one point in Rune and Rising, you know when. Nikolai gives Alina the emerald or whatever. As Zoya's talking about Nikolai, she's like, toss him over, break his heart cruelly. I will gladly give our poor prince comfort and I would make a magnificent queen. And then like Alina even talks to Nikolai later being like, you should marry a different princess. Like you should marry a powerful Grisha. Even Zoya is like, oh God, I would never marry Zoya. I was like, Lee, you sly dog. You are just peppering those seeds in here. Yeah. I read some interview with her. She was like, you know, sometimes you end books. And she's like, I knew where, when I finished, where Nikolai's story was going next. And I knew when she finished Crooked Kingdom, where Nina's story was going next. And so, I don't know, that gives me some hopes about the Darkling coming back, that it's like, not just about the shippers, that it's like a plan with Nikolai's story as well. Yeah. And she has evolved so much as a writer that I do have a lot of faith in where this is going to end up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Aubrey, I know you've been like keyed in to a lot of things like with the show and the book and everything. And I know you'd like watch some recent like interviews with Lee. Is there anything else that like we haven't touched upon that like was particularly striking that you like found out? No, I I mean, I think the big thing was she said, just like, like you said, it's a loose adaptation. We're not getting Nikolai in this first season. We're not getting Wylan. She did play some of the music, like the theme song for the series, and it was very good. And she said it's just really kind of like amazing to see it in person. They've really brought it to life. So I think Netflix has spent a lot of money on the show, which is good. I'm just like, I keep waiting because I feel like we should get a trailer soon. I mean, they're done. I know. They've been done for a long time. I know COVID's yeah. like been a thing. Well, they actually but... went back for more for some reshoots uh, yeah. more recently this fall, I think. Yeah. So you know they've got to do all the posts yeah. on that so yeah. well, just this week ben barnes like posted an instagram story of him like we're in the recording studio it's like i wonder what i'm doing and he's like speaking in what i assume is his darkling voice and then lee shared it in her instagram story so i'm like okay they're doing some like adr like mm-hmm. that's like last minute yeah. stuff right like you've edited things and yeah. you need to like put something in so I'm hoping for like some time in like January or February. That'd be very exciting. I'm, yeah, I'm hoping for a trailer at least in December. Yeah, that'd be they've great. got they have to have cut that together already, right? I mean, then, I would think so. Netflix is so short about other than things like The Crown, which they'll announce like very far out. A lot of these series, I feel like they give you like four to six weeks notice. Like, oh, this is when we're dropping it. Yeah, and here's the trailer. So. I feel like I could, we could get a trailer for this any week um, because I kind of assume 
it was initially supposed to be late 2020 as a release is what they had said. And then I think obviously with COVID things got delayed. So I would expect it early 2021, like we're getting it in January or February. That's what I think too. We should be getting a trailer soonish. I'm excited. It's nice. One of the good things about the fact that I'm the trilogy is not like my most favorite thing I've ever read is that I'm um, way more open to whatever it's going to do. Uh, it going forward like if this was like the most the thing I loved the most in the world I would have like a really hard time but I am very open to like any possibilities that they're going to have um in this show there's lots of room for improvement so right yeah so it's gonna be it's gonna be really exciting I'm excited to watch it well Aubrey thank you so much for joining us this was so much fun we would love to have you back sometime I know we're often always reading the same things or have read the same things so we would love to have you back sometime if you'd like to come back on with us anytime Uh, love it so next week uh Tasia do you want to tell our I guess we're doing in two weeks we're taking a Thanksgiving break but after that Tasia no surprise here but what are we covering next (laughs) We are going to be covering the Six of Crows duology, so Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom, and we're going to have uh, Jesse back as a guest for that episode. Yeah. Tasia, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ragey Cakes. Aubrey, where can people find you on the internet? <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at obsbobs. Um, basically anywhere else on the internet, probably too. <laughs> Great. I'm on Instagram at Rin underscore reads. You can find the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at act age. You can email us at act age pod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Um, and if you have a chance, please uh, rate and review us uh, wherever you podcast. That would be really helpful for us. That's it. Thanks friends. Thanks so much. This Thank was so fun. You. Thanks, Excited yeah. to continue with the Grishaverse next week. Woo. Bye.